Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Los Angeles to ever carry file magazine. Um, they've been so generous uh, Get my books and my and my work out into, into the world, and I really appreciate that. And um, and <laughs> the other great thing about being here tonight is um, uh, I'm here with one of my favorite writers in the world, Anna Stother, and you're gonna, you're going to hear her read from her new book, The Pink Hotel, in just a little bit, and, and it's fantastic. I, I love this book. Um, but I'm going to give her probably the weirdest introduction that you'll ever uh, see at a literary event. Because uh, I wrote this book that came out last fall, and it's called My Heart is an Idiot. It's a lot of stories about you know, um, love and relationships, my own misadventures in that arena, and also just about interesting people I've met in my travels the last you know, 10 years. And uh, the last essay in this book is um, it's called Ain't That America? And it's, it's about Anna. And so I thought it would be fun to share some, some uh, <laughs> to, to share some of this piece with you guys. Some of you know Anna. You'll, you'll appreciate um, these bits and pieces of her in, in this story. Um, some of you will get to know her better hearing this, this uh, piece. Um, it's, you know, I, I, read, I do a lot of readings. Um, I often read the same pieces that I know are crowd pleasers and just have a lot of yucks in them. Um, I've never read this piece before. So this will be the first time reading this piece. Um, I've also never, it's, a, it's really long. I can't read the, the entire thing. It's the first time I've ever read just an excerpted piece. I'm going to read like some bits and pieces and kind of try to connect the dots between. But um, here we go. It's called uh, Ain't That America. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, so I should also say like, like um, while this book is all true essays, there are, you know, I took some creative liberties, so there's little, you know, not, not, you know, not every bit of biographical data about Anna in this piece is necessarily absolutely precise, but I think, it, I think it's pretty true to who you are. So we'll, we'll see. Somehow what I pictured when I was reading this that she wouldn't be sitting so close to me. <laughs> All right, here we go. All right. It's called Ain't That America. I was introduced to Anna, the British girl, one April a few years ago at a crowded bar in West Hollywood called The Village Idiot. She was a friend of a friend. 
which earned me the chance to chat her up without, without any of the awkwardness of macking on a stranger. As our conversation blossomed, I could hardly believe my luck. With her wide blue eyes, delicate nose, and genuine, radiant smile, she was easily the most beautiful girl in the room. And though she was only 25, she was also probably the most accomplished. I realized as I asked her question about, questions about her day, and she laughed and talked on in her cheery British accent, that this was the girl my friend had been marveling about and telling me he wanted to introduce me to. She had published her first novel at 19, directed two prize-winning documentaries in her early 20s, and was regarded back home as one of England's finest young creative talents. She'd come to LA for a two-year screenwriting program and was set to return to London in a few weeks to finish her biography of former Prime Minister Tony Blair, who was a family friend, and then begin shooting her first narrative feature. Part of me was amazed that in this bar, surrounded by a sea of gorgeous, dapper, successful men, she locked in with me, the small-town dude in grubby maroon pants and a Rashid Wallace jersey, just visiting from Michigan. I had no statuettes on my desk, no house in the hills. In fact, I had slept the last three weeks in a battered recliner on the back porch of a friend's house near Pico and La Brea. I had been spending my days shooting hoops alone at the park and my nights putting together a zine made of trash found on the street. But she was cool like that. She didn't seem to notice a single one of these tanned Hollywood heroes, the actors, agents, directors, and producers. And I suppose that when I drink, I got the gift of gab and that can go a long way. It did that night, at least. Before we left the village idiot, me and my rented pickup, her with a friend of mine who delivered her to me. She'd agreed to go on a date with me, an ambitious date, really, an overnight trip to Joshua Tree. All clean-shaven, spick and span, I picked her up at, my, at her apartment in Los Feliz the next Friday around 2 in the afternoon, and we barreled east on I-10 toward Palm Springs, telling long, funny, intricate stories to each other. Anna's generous laugh and persistent curiosity made me feel like the most interesting guy in the world. And her stories fascinated me. Rivalries at school, travels in Laos, family sadnesses, labor party, political embroils. I looked up how to say that word today online. I, I still can't say it right. Embroils, something like that. Um, all, all told with a mix of intelligence, thoughtfulness, and compassion, but now without a certain edge. The sweet, expressive timber of her voice, along with the endearing accent, diction, and casual Britishisms, made for an intoxicating brew. I love the way you say the word literally, I told her. Literally. <laughs> she fumed, playfully defensive. And how is one supposed to say it? Literally. Literally, she said, and started to laugh. Damn you, I literally can't say it right. <laughs> Focused on the road, I allowed myself only an occasional sideways glance, and instead let myself fall into the delightful swoops and swirls of her words. It was like falling in love with a stranger over the phone, except she was sitting right next to me in a giant pickup zooming for the desert. At long last, I'd found a soulmate, a kindred spirit, and each new unsurpassable level of happiness I experienced was surpassed 12 minutes later, as one of us came to the end of a merry, strange, and melancholy tale, and we sat in connected silence for a moment, only to be blown past once more 11 minutes later, when the next story had reached its finish. We swung off the interstate onto Highway 62, steep and winding, and ascended into the high desert, through the town of Joshua Tree, and, and as the sun loped along, low in the sky, and radio signals faded. Soon we reached 29 Palms, where Anna marveled at the glut of gun stores, tattoo parlors, and barber shops called Stud Cuts, Stud Cuts 2, and Stud Cuts 3. Some of you guys maybe have seen those. Um, which serviced the local marine base. And I pointed out each trippy desert mural splashed on the sides of, ab of abandoned buildings. All right, so we ended up uh, hiking. Uh, my favorite place in the park is uh, Ryan Mountain. If any of you guys know that place, beautiful peak. And uh, 
and uh, it's beautiful up there. Um, no one falls out of love in this story. Nothing sours, not exactly. That night, back in our elegant hut on the grounds of the 29 Palms Inn, I drank so much in celebration that I spilled open my mind and let Anna rake through the contents like a kid with a sack of Lego blocks. I told her my every wish and dream, the plots, beat by beat, of all the movies I wanted to one day make, and the details of shit I'd witnessed as a kid that had mystified me or made me sad. She embraced it all with good humor and kindness, listening with an intensity that felt almost inconceivably generous. She may have been drunk, too. We had a pillow fight. We made out. We tickled each other. I played her songs by a white phoenix rapper I'd seen perform in an empty club and had become obsessed with. She sang me ridiculous tunes that she claimed all British kids learn at summer camp. In a way, Anna's looks and exotic speech reminded me of June Goodsman Dutter, the character played by Greta Scacchi in the Robert, Robert Altman movie The Player, who defined sexiness for me throughout college. But when I told her that, she took offense. I've seen that movie, she protested. She shacks up with that guy who killed her boyfriend. We stepped outside to peek at the stars. The alcohol, combined with my wild, swooning emotions, made me feel like I was flipping on shrooms. And the constellations pranced and swayed in a shimmering fresco. How can the desert be so cold, asked Anna, tugging me back inside. In my backpack, I had a recent issue of The Believer, which contained a sheet of temporary tattoos. A Winnebago, a battle axe wedged into a heart, a pair of spooning otters, a finely detailed portrait of the Chinese dissident artist Ai Weiwei. Anyone remember that issue of The Believer? That was, that was awesome. Anna and I didn't make that, uh, we didn't make love that night, I feared, uh, but perhaps with equal intimacy, we peeled the tattoos loose one at a time from their cellophane, cellophane sheet in the magazine and licked them and affixed them to each other's bodies in the softly lit bedroom, and at last, around 5 a.m., fell asleep, all but naked in each other's arms. All right. Now this is uh, where things things are going f fantastically, and then things take a, a, a an odd turn the next day. <laughs> uh, how you doing over there? <laughs> Hanging in? <laughs> you could have just chilled back there and <laughs> had to face the crowd <laughs> during this fucked up story. All right, um, which is 98 percent true. All right, here we go. I decided to take the scenic route. Um, the next day we have to go back to LA because uh, she's got some schoolwork meeting with one of her group, group projects. Um, I decided to take the scenic route and cut through the National Park to I-10 because it didn't add too many miles. I'd never been down that road before. It felt like driving on an alien planet. We cruised through strange fields of enormous boulders across plains of twisted red rock as bizarre towering cacti that looked stitched, stitched together from giant pipe cleaners waved their tentacles at us from the shoulder. And I kept marveling at how human-like the ubiquitous Joshua trees seemed to be, each one uniquely expressive. Its lower limbs extended like a pair of arms, and its third limb, up high, a crane neck with a head and face screwed up top. We laughed, ascribing them separate human emotions and stories. That one's pissed off because you didn't clean your room, Anna said. She's sending you to bed without dinner. You're right, I cried. Wait, check out that one with the broken branch. He's begging his bookie for another week to come up with the money. And there's the bookie, Anna said, pointing down the road. He's calling his enforcer to come finish the job. This merriment continued for 45 minutes. At the far end of the park, we stopped to refill water bottles at a rest area, then lapsed into silence as we passed the gate at the south entrance and coasted down, down a long, steep hill, where a stream of cars, pickups, and big rigs came into sight, hurtling west along I-10. Somehow the sight of the interstate broke the spell of the past 24 hours, and I was struck by a wave of sadness and anxiety, worried that our return to civilization might cause Anna's affections to taper off. 
No matter how perfect things go the first night you spend with someone, in those early stages everything is still fragile and precarious, and you never know what surprises lie around the bend. I stole a glance at her, arms crossed, brow furrowed, like something in her had shifted, as though her, although her neck and shoulders were still swathed in temporary tattoos, a reminder of the previous night's adventures. Behind her, the sun settled toward the horizon and the sky filled with the red glow. You know, she began very quietly, this is as much fun as I've had since I've been in the States. It's like we get on so well. It's easy to imagine if you were my boyfriend or something, how things could be. But I'm going home in a few weeks. And how would it really work to be with someone and live on separate continents? I don't think it could work. Whatever her concerns about distance, her words thrilled me and filled me with glee. I've been too cautious to say anything of the sort or expect too much from one night in the desert, no matter, no matter how magical. Though this might also have been the first time I'd been invited to enter a relationship and then booted out of it in the same line of thought. <laughs> I, I wasn't too crushed. Any obstacles before us, it seemed, could surely be hurdled. As we rolled down the entrance ramp onto I-10, caught speed and merged with the flow of traffic, we began to parse the possibilities. Would she be willing to stay out in the U.S.? If not Ann Arbor, maybe L.A. or New York. Not possible, she said. She had, she had to get back to London to finish her book on Tony Blair. After that, she had other projects already in the pipelines with friends in the UK. Besides, she'd spent the past two years in the States, far from her friends and family, and she was ready to be home. So the other option was for her, for it was for me to head to England. Would you ever consider that? Anna asked. On the one hand, it seemed crazy to uproot myself and move across the globe for a girl I'd spent one night with. On the other hand, Anna was completely dazzling, and I could picture us leading a life of unbounded happiness and fulfillment, writing books together at her family's country place in Devon, traveling to exotic corners of the world to shoot documentaries, raising kind, grounded, cosmopolitan children. And it seemed crazy not to. Before I had a chance to respond, though, I felt the truck suddenly drained of its power. And so at this point, the truck that I'm driving, this is like the... Um, a bad move on my part, the truck ran out of gas. So <laughs> this romantic weekend takes another turn. Um, we pull over and, I, and there's no phone service. You're out you know, at the south side of Joshua Tree National Park. There's only one thing to do, which is to hitchhike to the next exit and try to get a gas can or something, come back with gas. Now it's, it's like 30 or 40 miles to the next exit. So I, I stick on my thumb and uh, the first vehicle that goes past is this uh, black van, just like a couple tiny windows, and and this guy says, you know, he'll, he'll, he's a little dubious about my all my tattoos, <laughs> all my temporary tattoos. Um, the a way way he like thinks it's my dad or something, um, but um, but he gives me a ride, and and he's he's basically this former marine, like in his fifties. He's uh, a fireman now in Downey, California, and he's with his four sons and one of their friends, um, all crammed in the back of this van, and and his girlfriend is driving. He's in the passenger seat. I, I kind of get all the way into the back of the van. Just, everyone's on the floor. There's no seats back there. It's just all, all the five kids crammed on the floor, along with these giant cases that I take at first to be like guitars, and then later learn that they're all giant machine guns. And, and he's just spent the, the weekend with his kids just shooting guns all weekend in the desert. And, um, but I sort of fall in love with this family. And um, the dad is like, like a, he's like in the passenger seat up front, like, Every time they pass a truck, he's like flash, like showing his tits to the to the trucks, and he's singing on the radio and just going nuts. They drive out of this all the way to this gas station in like Indio and get a gas can. Then, I mean, they, this is incredibly generous. I'm ready to hitch back 40 miles back. They're like, no, we're driving you back. So that's 
taking them like an hour and a half out of their way. It's very, very kind and very generous. So, so um, you know, the whole on the whole ride, I've kind of been wrestling with this thing. You know, like, what do I do? Like, I've met this amazing girl. She lives on the other, not this other world, but she lives in, in you know, another continent. And I'm thinking, like, I should do it. I'm going to go for it. This is on the this is on the way back. Now, the guy I call him Miller Time because his hat his hat is a camo hat. It says it's Miller Time, but he only drinks Budweiser and he's been passing them to me for the last hour as we're as tall cans of Bud as we're as we're driving. Um, and so uh, here we go. Um, I looked out the window. They we're on our way back to the truck where Anna's been waiting for us, um, not really knowing what's going on. I looked out the window at as distant at distant lights across the desert plains, nursing my Budweiser as the miles slid by. 15, 20 minutes later, all the boys had finished their food, crumpled up their bags, and giggling, tossed them up front at Miller time, who weirdly chucked the first couple back our way and then ignored the rest. Now here's a tune, he said, cranking up the volume so loud that the speakers were crackling. It was John Cougar Mellencamp singing, Ain't that America, you and me? Ain't that America, something to see? This, from what I knew of it, was one of those songs like Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA that had been written as a eulogy for the dying American dream, but had been so widely misinterpreted as an anthem of patriotism and working class pride that its original intent had been usurped in the popular imagination. And actually, when you really thought about it, the artists were wrong and the popular, popular imagination was right. For how could you listen to Mellencamp sing the chorus and not feel stirred by love for America, whatever its shortcomings might be? As the song went on, Miller Time lifted his voice to sing along, his can of bud held aloft and swaying like a candle at an arena rock show. And when the chorus returned, he shouted, everybody now, to press the boys in back, and me too, I guess, to join in. I'd actually once been to the old sagging farmhouse in Brownstown, Indiana, where Mellencamp had recorded this tune, Pink Houses, down in the bogs and hollows near the Kentucky border. And I found myself thinking about the strange, dilapidated beauty of that part of the country. The song continued, swelling into its next verse, and I couldn't help but think of the beauty and sadness of a lot of the places I'd been, a lot of the roads I'd, tra a lot of the roads I'd traveled. As corny as it might sound, I felt moved by the song in a way I'd never had been the other 8,000 times I'd heard it. Maybe because before the past hour and a half, I'd never really considered leaving the country for good. And you, can truly, you can't truly appreciate something until it slipped from your grasp, or is about to. And if I stopped to think about it, how could I really leave home and abandon my country? Here, apparently, big-hearted marines and vans packed full of machine guns traipsed the land, rescuing stranded travelers. <laughs> Try finding that in England. <laughs> but it was more than that. Some of my best friends were transplants from places like India, Senegal, and Sweden. And as grateful as they were for the mostly kind ways they'd been treated in the United States and the opportunities that had come their way, they were also honest about their divided hearts that weird gnawing ache of living in an adopted home that even with its blessings can never truly feel like home. Could I give up my home for Anna? She was an angel, brilliant, cool as fuck. And it killed me to think of throwing in the towel on something magnificent before I had a chance to really start. But maybe, in spite of everything I'd believed about my own impulsive sense of adventure, I wasn't really ready to cash in my dollars for pounds and move across the pond for a chance at love. Maybe I'd hang around the US a bit longer and see what else came my way. Maybe, as a couple of friends had told me, I didn't want to find love in the first place, because if I'd wanted to find it, they believed I would have found it already. Maybe they were right, and that precious, terrible longing I felt every time I saw a girl who could be the one was an end in itself and all I truly craved. As the last verse played, I chugged the rest of my bud and buoyantly joined in, belting out the final chorus with Miller Time, his lady friend, and four out of the five boys, all of us singing along with great feeling. Ain't that America? 
for you and me. I've got the rest of the chorus there, you guys know it. Um, the, uh, the song ended and Miller Time shut off the radio, passed another Budweiser back to me and announced that he was taking a nap. He reclined his seat and planted his cap over his face. I cracked the beer and sat looking out the windows. Our communal sing-along high began to fade and the night grew steadily cool and mournful. By now we were just a few miles from where I'd left Anna in the truck. I often wished that I could split myself a hundred ways and live a separate hundred lives. One part of me might have whisked off to London to try to build a life with Anna, while another part of me might have jumped ship, rode along with Miller Time and his brood and built a life for myself in Downey. And still another part of me could keep on the same directionless path I'd been treading. But in the end, I supposed, we only had one life to lead, and the roads not taken would always outnumber and outshine the roads we ended up taking day by day without plan. Um, I'm going to read the last, last couple paragraphs of the piece. So we get, we get back to the, to the van, uh, to the truck, and uh, Anna's been waiting there for a couple hours um, patiently. Uh, she reached over to unlock the driver's side door, and I climbed inside. You're back, she said with a smile, having already forgiven me, it seemed, for being such a dumbass and forgetting to fuel up. It was a joy to see her, though her beauty felt doubly painful, now that I'd put to rest, for the most part, any dreams of us living out our lives together. Yeah, I said, sorry that took so long. It's okay, Anna said. I had my book with me, and I saw the most unbelievable sunset. Did you see it? Right over the road. I missed it, I guess. Oh, it was gorgeous. It was one of a kind. Spectacular, really. You know what that means, I said, as I started the engine... And once traffic lulled, guide us back to onto the freeway asphalt. It means if we hadn't run out of gas, we could have driven off together into the sunset. Literally. She laughed. Literally. Yeah, literally. We felt quiet for a moment. Well, I'll tell you what, she said. There will be other sunsets. There will be another sunset tomorrow. But she seemed withdrawn, and her words felt coded. Was she, was she saying that we would have other chances to watch the sunset together? Or had she, in my absence, surrendered on our future as well? And by other sunsets, did she mean other people for us to fall in love with? It won't be like this sunset, I said, the one I missed out on. It'll be different, inferior maybe. There's a million sunsets out there, Anna said urgently. Each one is magical. And with, and with that, she slipped her seatbelt off, slid across the seat, took my hand, and gave me a wondrous kiss on the cheek. It wasn't all it could have been, perhaps, but in that moment, it was enough. I smiled and put my arm around her, floated over to the fast lane, and hit the gas. And we hightailed it for the coast, the desert at our backs, the city ahead. For a little while longer, at least, it was just the two of us and the road. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so um, that's, that's my way of introducing to you um, one of my favorite writers who's written this, this beautiful book. It's, it's, about, um, it's about a girl who's coming to Los Angeles for the first time, as Anna did a few years ago. Not that, not that she's necessarily the girl in the book, but um, but uh, it's it, but it's a it's a it's a beautiful book, and uh, she's going to read from it now, right? Anna. Welcome Anna Stother to the stage. Yes. Well, that was crazily awkward. <laughs> um, such a strange thing, writing that you spend all your time sitting in a room on your own writing these incredibly intimate things, and then at some point you end up standing in front of a bunch of people reading all your random secrets. Um, so if, if that was one alter ego of mine, this is a very, very different alter ego of mine. Um, and chapter one of The Pink Hotel. 
Her bedroom reeked of cigarette ash and stale perfume. Two ashtrays were packed with lipstick-stained filters, as if she just popped out for another pack. A suspender belt hung from a chest of drawers, and a mink scarf was curled like roadkill at the floor next to her bed. A mirror opposite the bed reflected an image of me, lying fully clothed and out of place on the crinkled sheets. My haircut and body could have been that of a boy, but my oversized eyes made me look like a gothic Virgin Mary from a museum postcard. I wore a sweat-stained t-shirt and a pair of navy blue tracksuit bottoms. My skin still smelt faintly of grease and coffee from Dad's cafe in London, but now the smell was mingled with dehydrated aeroplane air and smog from Los Angeles traffic. Lily stared out at me from framed photographs around the room. In one photograph, she was standing beside a motorcycle wearing a leather jacket. In another, she was wearing a white t-shirt over a bikini and sitting cross-legged under a tree in the sunshine, laughing for the camera. In a third, she was naked, apart from vivid red lipstick and a floppy sun hat. Her skin in that last image was albino white, as mine is, and also marked with four dark circles, heavy eyes and dark nipples. Her hair is black in the photograph, though, while mine is naturally blonde. I got up from the bed and picked up a bottle of whiskey from the dresser near the door. There were no glasses, so I took a sip from the bottle and padded past her bed towards the bathroom. A pair of frilly knickers lay next to the toilet, and I tried not to let them touch my bare toes as I crouched to pee. Her bedroom was at the very top of a pink hotel in Venice Beach, Los Angeles. There'd been a funeral earlier in the day, but I hadn't made it to the crematorium. By the time I arrived in Venice Beach, Lily's Wake had become a drunken vigil, with over 200 people dancing and talking and snorting and drinking all over the hotel. Nobody knew who I was, so I pulled my grubby baseball cap over my eyes and walked through the corridor as a child would walk through a cocktail party. I saw long fingernails and wet mouths, dilated eyes, bony shoulders, and flashes of impossibly white teeth. I took a beer from an ice-packed bathtub and wandered uncomfortably around all five floors, examining people. An unshaven giant swigged vodka from a bottle, and a skeletal middle-aged woman danced with her eyes closed in the middle of the room. There was a man with red hair who wore pointy snakeskin shoes and a half-open white shirt. People hovered around him and his freckled hands clenched into fists as he moved from guest to guest. I can't believe it, said a woman to the red-haired man. I keep thinking she's just late, he replied, squeezing his freckled fists. Oh, sweetie, said the woman. She was always late, wasn't she? She would have been late for her funeral. She was late for our wedding, the red-haired man continued. Said she couldn't find matching underwear. A smile forced itself up through his frown, and others in the crowd smiled sadly. The red-haired man had a nasal twang like Bugs Bunny, which I guess was a New York accent. You were a great team here, someone said to him. I watched the sweaty red-haired man for a few moments longer. When he turned away from me, I couldn't hear his conversation anymore, so I continued through the carnival of mourners, eventually finding my way up towards the top of the hotel and a door marked private. Through the keyhole, I could see a bicycle and a pair of rollerblades. I expected this private door to be locked, but something was stuck, and it opened with a yawning creak 
into the bare wooden floorboards of a cramped corridor that smelt of air freshener and closed windows. It was a relief when the door behind me clicked closed and muffled the sounds from downstairs. There was a dusty, naked light bulb hanging from the ceiling above my head and sand in the cracks between the floorboards at my feet. The walls of the hallway were poached salmon pink, much paler than the bright stucco facade of the beachside hotel. Through a door frame to my left, the kitchen contained only a blue formica table and two wooden chairs with padded seats. Dirty glasses and burnt-out scented candles cluttered the table, and unwashed dishes filled the sink. Doors were open on either side of the corridor, a living room with a flat-screen TV, a toilet, a small study with, de with a desk covered in papers. The only door that wasn't open was the one at the end. If it's possible to feel nostalgia for something that you've never known, then it was a mixture of nostalgia and curiosity that made me lie down on her sheets and run a bath in a tub scattered with millimetre-long armpit hairs caught on a tide line of scum from the last time she or her husband took a bath. The party reverberated underneath, and I locked the bathroom door to take off my clothes, as she must have done a million times, although she was likely more elegant about it. She wouldn't have nearly tripped as her ankles caught in the elastic of her sports trousers, and the various cuts and scrapes on her body probably didn't burn and dissolve in the heat as mine did. Her, scabs didn't, um, her skin was probably flawless. I scooped bath water into my mouth and let it spill slowly down my bottom lip. Sitting on my haunches with my torso crouched over my knees and my nose just above the bubbles, all I could smell was steam. A moth watched from the window ledge above the tub, steaming her wings. Outside the window, there was a bright blue sky and palm trees. I flicked water at my mothy audience, and she scattered up towards the light bulb above the mirror. I was just about to light one of Lily's cigarettes, kept in a jeweled box of razors and bath salts next to the bath, when a creak sounded in the corridor outside the bedroom. The bathroom was blurry with steam, and I only just managed to scramble out of the bathwater to open the window above the toilet before the creek made its way into Lily's bedroom. The steam dissipated. I nearly slipped on the white tiles, tugged my tracksuit bottoms over wet legs, held my breath, and then slowly descended to a crouch in front of the bathroom keyhole. I squinted and peered through it. An extremely tall man was sitting on the end of Lily's bed, bang in front of the keyhole with his head in his hands. I'd noticed him earlier drinking from a bottle of vodka in the corner of the lobby downstairs, and had thought that he looked like something out of a fairy tale about giants or ogres. He was in his mid-thirties and wearing a stripy shirt, a tattered black jumper, and a pair of blue tailored trousers with holes like full stops and commas on the thighs. His black hair was only slightly longer than the stubble on his face, and he had a pair of stupid gold-rimmed sunglasses resting on his head. His trousers might have been expensive, but they were frayed at the hem as if he were dressed half in designer cast-offs and half in items he bought off eBay when he was drunk. He sat still on Lily's bed, his shoulders slumped. After a moment, the giant looked around Lily's room, and he picked up a photograph from the bedside table. It was the one of Lily sitting cross-legged under a tree and laughing. The giant fumbled, 
trying to get the picture out of the frame with his big hands. He nicked his thumb and put the tip of it in his mouth like a child. I was glad the man was stealing the picture of Lily laughing in a big white t-shirt, not the one next to it where she was naked. He eased the photograph out from under the glass and just as he slipped it into his pocket, there was another noise from the hallway outside Lily's bedroom. For a moment, the giant seemed to consider making a jump for the bathroom. His green eyes flicked towards me and he put his hands on his knees as if about to haul his drunken body to a standing position. I held my breath and waited to be discovered inexcusably topless and sopping wet in a dead woman's bathroom. But the giant's body was slow with alcohol and before he got off the bed, Lily's bedroom door opened. What the fuck? slurred the Bugs Bunny voice of the red-haired man. I couldn't see him through the keyhole, but could hear his heavy breathing. I'm sorry, said the giant, who got up off the bed and stepped towards the red-haired man out of the keyhole's vision. There was a shuffle and the muffled sound of skin hitting skin. The red-haired man swore and the giant made a noise that could have been a groan or the exertion of a punch. I couldn't see exactly what was going on, but the giant stumbled backwards and nearly fell. Skin hit skin again, and then it was the red-haired man who collapsed onto Lily's bed. Everything paused. The red-haired man didn't move from his horizontal position, but his bloodshot eyes were open, staring dumbly up at the giant. Get out of here, slurred the red-haired man. He turned his cheek to the side on Lily's pillow. I'm so sorry, said the giant. Then just get the fuck out of my apartment. There's nothing here anymore. You can all just fuck off. I'm so sorry, repeated the giant. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, Mary, do you want to read, should I read chapter two? Yes. Yeah? Um, okay. The red-haired man lay unconscious on the bed. He stared briefly when I put a blanket over his body, but he didn't open his eyes or speak. There were granules of white powder tangled in his nose hair, and his skin was tacky like fresh paint. He clearly dressed with precision earlier in the day. His snakeskin shoes were both tied in a careful bow, and his socks were the same color as his suede belt. But now there was vomit on his trousers, and his skin smelt of beer. I quietly picked up a sequin dress from the floor of Lily's bedroom. I held it against my body, but it looked silly. I was nearly 18 years old and hadn't grown into dresses yet. They didn't suit me. I dropped the dress to the floor and put a man's bowler hat on my head. There was a messy jungle of silk, leather, cashmere and cotton on the floor, along with a few men's shirts crumpled in puddles, a few ties and loafers and big trainers amongst the overpowering femininity. The wardrobe rail had fallen down while the men fought, so the room looked even more chaotic than before. Some patent red stilettos caught my eye, and a pair of grey ballet pumps. I picked up the mink scarf from the floor, and I wrapped it round my neck. It felt heavy and dead. At home in London, I had a white chest of drawers full of tracksuits, oversized jumpers, and screwed-up t-shirts, acquired from school-lost property boxes or locker rooms over the years. The drawers were decorated with the faded remains of red Arsenal football stickers. I glanced at the red-haired man snoring now on his bed. A photo of his wedding day sat on the bedside table next to a glossy paperback novel. It was difficult to tell how old Lily was in the picture, 
but she was wearing a simple white dress with a veil covered with a veil covering big brown eyes. The red-haired man looked much more handsome in the photograph than he did lying on the bed. In the wedding photograph, he stood behind his new wife with a look of amused, baffled devotion, like he couldn't believe his luck. I noticed the actual wedding dress was in a dry cleaner's zipped plastic bag curled on the wardrobe floor, where it had slid off the rail during the fight between the giant and the red-haired man. I owned just one photo of Lily before she left us, which I found in Dad's desk drawer next to some spilt ink, old electricity bills and an ecosystem of dust. She left when she was 17, three years after I was born. In the picture, she and Dad are sitting in a photo booth with me, three years old, in their lap. Dad has acne and Lily has pink hair. She was always dyeing it different colours. Dad is looking at Lily, who is already looking away from both of us, up into the middle distance. I'm the only one who's looking in the camera. She must have left a few months after the photograph was taken. She looks as if she's already fading from the tube station photograph booth, like she's turning into a fairy child or a poltergeist as the camera flashes. I couldn't imagine her in the cafe or helping me with my homework. She was always just an undefined thought in my head or a shape that seemed sometimes about to appear in my peripheral vision but never did. Nobody heard a word from her after she left. We didn't even know she moved to America. The first time she ever felt remotely real to me was when I found out that she was dead, because at least that was physical. It wasn't the half-remembered smell of her, or a story about how she stole money from Grandma's purse, or how she and Dad went on their first date to the aquarium. It was fact. She died. She was 32. The accident happened on a road called Laguna Highway, somewhere outside Los Angeles in the desert. She was riding a motorcycle too fast and not wearing a helmet. She never regained consciousness and died in an ambulance ten, 20 minutes later, the hospital administrator told me over the telephone while I stood motionless in our living room off the Finchley Road in London. The hospital administrator thought I ought to know that my mother was dead, since I was her only blood relative, but the hospital only knew I existed because of some information on an old healthcare document. It wasn't easy to locate your information, but I left a message on your machine four days ago, she said. I frowned. Dad hated talking about my mother, his first girlfriend. He'd mentioned her a countable number of times in my life, and all the small snippets of information that had come my way were from grandmother or family friends. Lily was a coward, a slut, a terrible mother. If Dad had sat me down and just told me what Lily was dead, perhaps I would have shrugged and gone back to watching TV or reading a book. It's not like I knew her. But he hadn't told me. So instead of shrugging, I packed my savings from the cafe and stole Dad's credit card. It took me 10 minutes to book a ticket online for the early the next morning, and 20 or so hours later, I was in my mother's bedroom at the top of a vast pink hotel in Venice Beach, lifting a wedding dress up against my body. I glanced briefly at her unconscious husband and took off my own damp t-shirt to slip the dress over my head. If the red-haired man had woken up at that second, he would have seen torn tracksuit bottoms sticking out of the milky froth of his dead wife's silken lace wedding dress. For a moment, I was caught inside the cloud of perfumed silk. The music was getting quieter in the layers of hotel underneath the bedroom, the party finally winding down. It must have been five or six in the morning by that point. I could have taken off the dress and snuck out. Nobody would have known that I'd been there. 
but I couldn't take my eyes off the creature in the mirror. I didn't look anything like Lily. Nobody would recognize the connection. Who knows if her husband or anyone else even knew she had a daughter. I could have snuck out in the same invisible way I came. I could have gone home and worked in the cafe to help pay off the credit card debt. I could have walked from Lily's prostate husband and snuck out of the party. But instead I picked up one of Lily's red stilettos. I wanted to take them, even though they wouldn't suit me and I'd probably never be able to walk in them. Then I figured maybe it wouldn't hurt to take a couple of dresses, a few pairs of shoes. Lily might have wanted me to have some of her stuff. I padded over to the wardrobe to look for a bag or a suitcase or something, because all I had with me was my doodled-on school rucksack. Glancing at the red-haired man, I got down on my knees to reach under the bed, which is where Daphne and Dad used to keep their suitcases at home. Sure enough, amongst old tissues, broken sunglasses, and crumpled receipts, I tugged out a beat-up red suitcase. It was about three feet by two and made out of the material the color of ancient Play-Doh. It sort of smelt like Play-Doh too, chalky and dry yet somehow comforting. Inside there were papers, postcards, and photographs in some of the little pockets. To my darling Lily, I read from the first line of one of the typewritten notes, and then the red-haired man started to stir. He groaned on the bed and a little bit of white saliva bubbled at the corner of his lips. I began to put clothes quickly in the suitcase, on top of the letters, looking back to the red-haired man every two seconds to check he was still unconscious. I took a leather biker jacket, a pair of stonewashed jeans, a silk fuchsia dress, a fitted black dress, a white cotton dress with black buttons down the front, four tops, some sunglasses, a little pair of silver teardrop earrings, some underwear, red lipstick, a suede tan handbag, two packs of cigarettes and a green plastic lighter. I picked up the shiny paperback novel from next to her bed, and looked down on Lily's husband. The pointed tip of one snakeskin shoe was dangling off the side of the bed. And his chest hair was all matted around the gold chain at his neck. He might have been handsome once, but he was gaunt and pulpy now. He groaned again, rasping like his mouth was full of sand, but he didn't stir, and I went back to closing the suitcase over skirts and dresses. There was a pile of $20 notes in Lily's underwear drawer, which I guiltily stuffed in the pocket of my rucksack, too. As I closed the suitcase clasp, the red-haired man made another noise, and this time the rasp turned into a cough that seemed to lift him out of unconsciousness and up onto his elbows, although his eyes remained closed. He coughed again, straining the buttons on his shirt and making the veins of his neck swell. As I stepped towards the bedroom door with Lily's suitcase in my hand, the red-haired man opened his eyes and stared at me. What the fuck? he said. I didn't put down the suitcase when he spoke, but pulled the bedroom door closed with my free hand just as the red-haired man made an uncoordinated lunge towards me off the bed. The bedroom door slammed shut and I didn't open it to check if he was all right, just legged it out of the apartment. Um, so, um, so, 
I just want to ask you a question or two, Anna. Um, thanks for thanks for sharing the first two chapters of the book, which I love. Um, and then see if anyone else out here has, has any questions too. So, I want there's, there's a little paragraph here that I, I love in your book. Um, you say uh, you're talking about the, the kind of the cafe scene here, and you say uh, Los Angeles must be the only city in the world where you sit in a cafe and hear one guy say. No, no, you don't understand. The radioactive monkeys have escaped. And, and you're talking about how people are always talking about their screenplays and stuff in, in cafes. And then you hear another person analyze their own lives uh, in movie writing language. Consciously, I'm in love with my wife, one man said to his friend. But unconsciously, I'd rather do my secretary. It feels like this is a real first act turning point for our marriage, as you know. <laughs> the men nodded solemnly at each other. So, can you just talk about? I mean, you you came here uh, to go to school for a couple of years, and what 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 are your impressions? You also talked to me today about how much you love LA and how how nice it feels to be back here after a long time of uh, a long absence. But what what were your impressions when you first moved here? I mean, I think that you, you the the character in your book is not you, but but um, but you you might you must have experienced some of these things, same things when you first came to LA, seeing it from an outsider's perspective. Yeah, for sure. I expected to absolutely hate it. I hate the beach. I don't surf. Um, I kind of thought it would be like just wandering around a glossy magazine. Um, and I was on a road trip around California and Nevada. And my friend ended up in, in um, San Francisco. And I ended up completely at random with no purpose whatsoever. Um, in this hotel called the Cadillac on Venice Beach, which is this like just ridiculously pink um, Art Deco hotel. And I sort of rocked up quite late in the evening and there was this big party going on, which is pretty much the inspiration for the beginning of, of the Pink Hotel. And I didn't plan to go to film school at all. I had no idea what I was doing. And term it had actually already started at AFI and I managed to sort of wrangle my way I completely fell in love with it I really didn't think I would but I fell in love with this insanely sort of elemental city that's constantly bracing itself with forest fires and drought and where there are like coyotes and right aid parking lots <laughs> and also a storyteller city where everyone is just completely and utterly mind-blowingly obsessed by by self-creation and, and identity and and, um, and character, which seemed like the perfect place to sort of set a coming-of-age story. You told me earlier about a, um, a con another conversation you overheard where somebody was talking about a friend who had had a rough childhood or something, or what, what terms did they put it in? Backstory. Like, nobody, nobody actually had a, had, a, had a bad childhood. They had a bad backstory. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, some people are going to read this book, and they're going to they're going to mistake you for you know for the for the narrator for you know for the main character in the book. And you and actually your first book, um, which I, I met your brother. He is he is strikingly handsome, and and your first book is about a brother and sister, an ancestral relationship, right? So did did people do people read Pink Hotel? It's been out in, in Britain for for a little while. Um, do people read Pink Hotel and think it's you? Do people read your first book and think this is like your confessional thing? Or? Um, well, the first book, I don't think anyone did because it's so ridiculous. <laughs> um, but my poor brother, who's actually younger than me, 
and he was, at the time when Isabel and Rocco came out, was a rather like, he was not a striking he was like a rather awkward, chubby, like, cute little schoolboy. It was great, and I do have a very vivid memory of sitting and eating cornflakes about to go to school, and I could hear outside the window his friends had come to pick him up, and they were chanting, Mikey's like, what is this? <laughs> But I mean, I, yeah, I, it didn't, I, and there was one really awful evening standard, evening standard of London magazine um, headline where I said something like, something like everyone will think that, or I hope nobody thinks that I've slept with my brother and they managed to use, like, cut it in the way they do, so it looked like I was saying something much grimmer. <laughs> <laughs> it's natural for people to confuse a novel. It's a novel. Pink Hotel is a novel, but it's an, people. It's natural for maybe for people to confuse authors with their characters. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, you write in the first person, and it's a English girl in Los Angeles, and I think it's perfectly natural that people do. And also, there are lots. There are lots of things in it that that um, are my observations or or my neuroses, even though the actual plot is entirely fiction. <laughs> stress that. Are, are there um, are there people who have questions for Anna? Anyone anyone have a question for her out there? Let's open up to you guys. We'll, we'll, a couple questions and then we'll wrap up. Yes. Journal every day and write down observations, and then just say one day you heard of them, or just keep them in your gigantic brain. I've been packing up my flat at the moment, um, and in London, and I have like these boxes that are just full of notebooks, and they're not journals, but they're they are observations most of which is completely illogical or illegible. And they say just things that I kind of begin to think what I was trying to explain in them. But I can't throw any of them away. So I have three huge cardboard boxes of like my life in, in illegible thoughts. But I don't so really like the schizophrenic of Yeah, they, people would think I was, yeah. <laughs> Very worried. Um, but... I used to keep a journal, but I don't. I don't really anymore. I think because when you're writing, you I keep more journal-like things when I'm not writing a novel. I think when you're writing a novel, you just put it all in there in a mixed-up way. So although it's not like reality in there, the truth comes out in a different way. Yes. Did you know? <laughs> did you know what was going to happen? the character in your book when you first started writing it? Um, I, knew, I knew what the twist would be at the end. I knew that. But I didn't know how she was going to get there. Or I did, actually. I did plan how she was going to get there and then completely That's ignored right. my plan and she did something totally else. <laughs> do you know the arc of your characters? I mean, do you know the, how your stories are going to end? No, um, I don't really, but I... Uh 
I mean, some the in my heart as an idiot, it's all it's personal essay. So I mean, there 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 are really true stories. So I I know the ends of the stories, but you, that doesn't mean you necessarily, you necessarily know where where you'll where you'll stop the storytelling. You know where you'll end the piece. So so no, I sometimes don't. Um, usually it's like you know you, you see a little bit farther ahead, and then at some point like two thirds of the way through, you 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 know see your way to the end. Yeah, it's funny maybe with your ones thinking of like how you tell stories because obviously if I'd written that, it would be completely different. You know, I would have stopped at a different a different place, and well, obviously that's what it would have been. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good yeah. call, Steve. Okay. I've never written anything about Tony Blair, by the way. No. <laughs> <laughs> some of those, some of those details were, were um, fictional. But the feeling, the feelings of the piece are all, we're, we're all real. And and and, here, and one funny thing is about finishing the book. That is a lot about love stories and about, you know, I, I learned something, which was that you know so many of these times when I thought something was going to be this ep great epic romance, it actually it turned into something equally valuable, which was like a lifelong friendship. You know, and so, you know. Things didn't go the way I thought they might have with you after the first um, day, but um, <laughs> but uh, at the same time, I've you know you, you come to really value what you know like when we did a Europe tour with our friend Brett Laudermelka a, a few years ago. You know it was you who you know you you were like our home base for our whole Europe tour, and we were come, staying at your house for a week, traveling off to other countries in 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 the room that Tony Blair had slept in before the the previous weeks. <laughs> We left a few behind, um, but uh, no. But so you know, there, there's something valuable about the, the the connections that you make with people, even if it doesn't necessarily, you know, turn out to be everything your your mind kind of and heart kind of work it up into. Um, one or two more things. Yes, Liberty. I think that I think the idea, yeah, if like you're writing a book of essays and they're true, you know, I mean, I I can't pretend I recorded all these conversations. So I think my I always tried to capture the the truth of a of a of a moment or or of a of a scene of something that went down as so as best as I can reconstruct it. So it's not it's not literal, and I don't have a photographic memory, but um, but I do remember the the literally <laughs> conversation, and I remember you know there's other details that do stick out. Um, yeah, yeah, you're you're conveying how how it felt generally, and that's that you know that's the truth. That's it it, it feels true to me because it's, it's as I as I remember it, and um, but you're not necessarily trying to be absolutely verbatim. It's not a New Yorker article, you know. It's um, it's you know it's creative nonfiction. Um, um, one or two last ones. You, 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 yes, um, you you sir. Yeah, Anna. Um, I was just it happened really fast, I remember, because I was getting dark out, and I knew that I was not going to get picked up hitchhiking as soon as it was dark out. And so I remember I just kind of was like, I know what I got, I'll, I'll be right back. And I, I wasn't really thinking about that it was, I was thinking it was two miles to the next exit where the gas station would be, not... 30 miles, so I just kind of was like, I'll, I'll see you later, and then I didn't have, a, I couldn't call you to tell you where I was, I was gone for hours, it gets dark out, I don't know. <laughs> you had a book, I remember, so. I had a book. Yeah, you're all right, it probably, you're like, it's probably back like that, you're lost in some book. Um, 
Yes, yeah. So, <laughs> that's why she. That's why she moved back to the <laughs> London. She's like, forget about this guy. He talks over me. Did anybody stop to talk to you? No. To see if you're okay? No. How did you feel about being abandoned? Tell us the real story. Well, actually, there were, but, well, it, it, we, I amalgamated two, two different, two different, uh, two different stories. So we made two trips to Joshua Tree, and one we came back, and and. Uh, and the other one, on, on that particular trip, there was uh, two other friends in the, in the truck. So I, I, had, I had friends. So I wasn't, I wasn't just like alone in the truck on my own. I had, there were like two people. Javon and Dan, yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't as scary as it sounds. <laughs> yes. Yes, you, you and then you. Um, what are you working on next? Um, I, I just finished this documentary film. It's called Medora. It's about um, a, a rural town in Indiana that, um, that's, uh, that you know, that's in in dire straits, uh, and a high school basketball team that that never wins, and so it just premiered at South by Southwest a few weeks ago, and I'm just working on like um, getting out into the world more in, in the coming uh, year. So um, now I've worked on My Heart's an Idiot and this film for the last five years, so it's kind of crazy now. For the first time in the last like week or two, I've just suddenly been like, wow, I can work on anything. I have a bunch of ideas for for um, more films I want to make, documentaries and and sort of narrative films, and I have. Um, other books I'd, I'd like to write, but um, actually a, a guy, I, I didn't tell you this, but a guy emailed me a couple weeks ago and he, uh, he's, he, he, he pulled off this insanely ambitious heist. He tried to pull off this heist in Phoenix. Um, they built like an ATV in the sewer tunnels, like a ship in a bottle, because they were going to, and like they made fake manhole covers. He was, they were going to rob this casino. He was a gambling addict. And he was desperate. He had owed a loan shark hundreds of thousands of dollars. So he was going to, um, him and three friends, like, I'll just do this whole thing. Didn't work out. He's at Lompoc, like, federal prison. And um, he read some article I wrote and just told me he, he's never told a story before. And it's a pretty amazing story. And so, he, but he said he wants to tell it to me. So I, I think that would be a fun, easy book to write. So I, I'm going to go meet him at, uh, next weekend for the first time and start hearing, trying to learn, suss, suss out his story a little bit. Um, you, yes, you and then you. And then I know... Um, Anna, what are you? What, what's your? What are your? What are your? Well, Anna had just had a, a new book that. that okay, yeah. Well, well d d tell them about the new book, please, because uh, another book that. Yeah. Um, another book, weirdly, has just come out in England simultaneously to this one coming out here. So the, it's called the Art of Leaving, and it's about a girl who's hmm. obsessed by saying goodbye to people in countries and. Like me. <laughs> just, just like giving you a hard time, giving you a hard time. No, um, what, what else are you working on now? That book just came out, yeah. Yeah, so that's only just come out. So I'm about to move to Berlin, and I have no idea what I'm going to write. Not a kid. That's awesome. Why Berlin? It's a good question with no good answer. Um, the Pink Hotel's really doing like weirdly well in Germany. And they do a lot of kind of events and stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they pay you really good money for the events. <laughs> a lot of speaking gigs around Germany. She'll be, she's very popular there. Uh, last question, if, and then if, if anyone has more questions for Anna, um, she's going to sign books. She's, 
check out, pick up a copy of the Pink Hotel at the front counter. Um, come here, and uh, and she'll she'll answer any other questions you might have as she's signing your book. But you you had a last question. Yeah. And just a little last second. Is doing well in Germany in English? No, in German. Oh, in German. Oh. Um, so when you were in LA, you were at AFI studying screenplays, right? Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering how you felt about because you're obviously your form is that or seems to be the novel. So how do you feel about? I mean, if you could just comment for you the form of the screenplay and the form of the short story as opposed to the novel. If I learned anything from two years in LA, and I write with such enthusiasm for screenplay writing, is that I'm just not a team player. I'm no good at like group workshopping or or anything to do with like large groups of people or people in general. In short stories. Um, so uh, well, in short stories, I find incredibly difficult and and have huge respect for you know you have to be so much neater with it. Like even just sort of like studying like where where your ones just turn. Like yeah, it has to, you have to be so much sort of tidier about the whole thing. And I have written a couple recently. Um, Economical. Enjoy it, but um, I like writing novels more. I think I'm quite obsessive. I like mm -hmm. keeping going, going inside, and yeah. going inside. And, and your mom's a great writer, and uh, and it's cool. She's the one, the person. Is she the person that you share your books with as you're as you're finishing them? I like that. I like that. That's cool, because uh, it's quite different from the mom in, in the Pink Hotel. Yeah. Um, check out Anna's book. Um, if you if you buy a copy of, of My Heart Is an Idiot or the Pink Hotel, um, I, I brought some Found Magazine shirts and some uh, My Heart Is an Idiot shirts. You can get a free free shirt as long as they last. If you check out her book or mine, um, come up here. She'll sign them and uh, and uh, you know ask any other questions you might have. Um, thanks so much to to Skylight Books. To Kevin, to Steve, to everyone that works here and makes this place such a great place. Thanks to you guys for coming out and uh, joining this great event. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.